0: Okay, so obviously we have uh, walked through the first three chapters of Genesis, and today we're going to begin to introduce Genesis chapter four as we continue on with our study. But just as a way of very brief summary reminder of the of the track that we've been on, obviously we began in, in Genesis chapter one with a very um, a very detailed. Uh, uh, chronological view of the origins of the world and the ultimate creation of man on Creation Day 6. Obviously, we talked about um, the various um, primary presuppositions that are often loaded into this kind of study of origins, particularly when you think about uh, secular thinking, secular worldview, uh, secular science, and those presuppositions that often guide and inform the conclusions that are drawn about origins, about how we got here, or how we evolved, or from what, or where we came from, and when we came from that place or that form. We've talked about that, I think, in, in at length. Um, ultimately, we arrived in Genesis chapter 2, which gives us a more uh, focused, zoomed-in focus of Creation Day 6 and the creation of Adam and Eve and their placement in the garden. And then, of course, we moved from that to Genesis chapter 3, where we wrapped up, Several weeks ago, with this great fall of man, this this great uh, event called the fall of man that brought into the world sin, and that brought into the world and into the hearts and minds of men corruption and, and a sinful nature, and so obviously that gives us context for the world that we live in today. It gives us a it answers the big question that would would come after you read through Genesis chapters one and two. You know, what happened? I mean, Because what we see in Genesis chapter 1-2 is clearly not the experience we have now. So, so now we arrive at Genesis chapter 4 after tracking through uh, creation and the uh, specific uh, uh, elements of the creation and, and placement of man and woman in the garden and in relationship and marriage and the, the formation of that institution of marriage and family to their fall and to the curse that came as a result of that. Now we move into Genesis chapter 4, and we basically see uh, kind of a broader portrait of life in a fallen world. We end in Genesis chapter 3 without any real broad picture of, of how, that, how that curse and how that fall and how sin and being in a fallen world begins to extend or expand its reach in the context of life for, for men and women. And so this is where we begin to turn that corner and, and begin to see uh, that the broader implications of life in a fallen world as a result of what took place in Genesis chapter three and we 're going to kind of break this down into three major parts if you will i don 't really have a good sense of how this is going to break down time wise um, over the course of the next few weeks but i 've just kind of broken down the simple part of the outline into three major parts um, and the first part that we 're going to look at we 're going to introduce today i don 't know how far we 'll get we'll we 'll introduce it but I'm sure we'll spend some more time on this first part next week, um, is really the focus on Cain and Abel that we start off with in Genesis chapter 4, first first part of that, and really all the way through it for the most part, is a focus on Cain and then uh, the generations that follow that. But um, Cain and Abel with a focus on this idea that there is no middle ground between these two representatives. Okay, There's no middle ground when you look at these two representatives. That's going to be kind of our, our focal thought or takeaway And that'll be focused in Genesis uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. The second part we'll look at is going to focus on cities and culture, and we'll talk a little bit about common grace in the context of the emergence of culture and society and cities and that kind of thing that are spoken of uh, primarily in verses 17 to 24. Then the third part is really a, a smaller section in the text itself. It's just verses 25 to 26, But we get to this part and and the third part of this study of preservation and hope of the righteous with the the birth of Seth as a replacement for Abel. Um, And so we'll talk a little bit about that as we, we really continue to see this view of God's unfolding plan of redemption. It's, it's God revealing himself and his character and his nature and his power and his purposes in creating the universe and creating man, but you also continue to see these elements of God's redemptive plan at work. We even expanded on that in Genesis chapter 3 as we looked at the curse and really what is predominantly a very, very bad news story in Genesis chapter 3, but we, we finished that study really looking at the elements of redemption that are that are in play there and, and revealed there and and intimated at, as, as we see clearly now from a New Testament standpoint, that we're there and present and active in God's unfolding plan, even in Genesis chapter 3 after the curse. So that's kind of the, the roadmap of where we're headed. And um, to get us kind of set around the text, I just want to read together the first 16 verses of Genesis chapter 4 to begin our time. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? "'If you do well, will you not be accepted? "'And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. "'It's desires for you, but you must rule over it.'" Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Where is Abel your brother?' this story of Cain and Abel, this, this unfolding of life in the fallen world as it is, it is detailed for us in these two men who were born of Eve. Um, and what we see here, and what I want us to kind of draw from this, this narrative, is what you have in addition to the uh, unfolding of historical events, this is historical narrative written by the hand of Moses, we have a recounting of historical events in detailing the birth of Cain, the birth of Abel, their occupations, um, their, their efforts at worship, what they did in the context of worship, Cain's response to that, the dialogue between God and Cain. You have these actual events being described, but you also have this broader picture being put forward to us of what I'm just calling the Society of Cain, or the Society of the Unrighteous, compared to or really contrasted more so with the society of Abel or the society of the righteous. Okay, So I want to kind of keep that, that vision in mind as we look at this, because, because you're really talking about, in this whole narrative, you're talking about beginnings, right? I mean, Genesis is about beginnings. So now we're seeing the beginning of the unrighteous and the righteous. Yes?
1: I think if you look through the whole Genesis, you'll find the word division, and you can see. Right. Here's the dividing between Cain and Abel or Seth. Right. And you you just follow that the whole way
0: through. Right. And there's great implications for us too as we continue in this study that that while I want to make sure we deal with the uh, specifics and the details in the text. I also want to make sure we recognize there's great implications here, especially under this idea, this point of not being any middle ground, because we live in a day and a time, and really historically it's always been this way, but we live in a day and a time, even in particular in the context of professing Christian community, where there is this idea of there being this soft middle ground that Christians are to occupy with, not just by virtue of, Um, their day-to-day comings and goings, but almost as an intentional um, strategy, kingdom-type strategy for evangelism. We're to occupy this worldly middle ground, so to speak, in in a a way for effective kingdom witness or kingdom work. And when you look at the text of Scripture, and you really see it vividly here in Genesis chapter 4, that is not what you see at all. You do not see this this sort of squishy place where we can kind of um, coexist, if you will, and and um, share ideas and ideologies in an effort to try to reach some agreement about who God is and what he has called us to and, and what we are accountable to before him and so forth. So, I really want us to kind of see this contrast in stark and bold relief as we look at it. The society of Cain and the unrighteous versus the society of Abel being the righteous. Now, when we look at this passage and we look at the details of the narrative, you notice that um, the contrast in this passage focuses primarily on Cain and his profile. There's very little information in here about Abel. So think about this from the perspective of, um, of believers studying the scripture. Here we are looking at Genesis chapter 4, and we're looking at this, this account, and, and what's getting major play here is unrighteousness, wickedness, Abject rejection of God and his will that 's what 's getting major play here in this narrative not not Abel Abel is like barely even mentioned. I mean his story is over before it 's barely even told here and as I thought about that i 'm going to draw a little bit of an analogy here, not as an explicit um, interpretive uh, principle that you can draw from the the actual um, words in the text itself. But as a, as a general observation, this, this contrast, really this focus on the profile of Cain as the, the first apostate. He, he's the first unrepentant sinner on the planet. Uh, he's the first to utterly and completely reject God. I mean, obviously, Adam and Eve fell, but they re- repented. There's, a, there's evidence of repentance and we'll talk about that even a little bit further here as we, as we look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. But there's very little information here about about Abel as the representative of the righteous. Very little. What
2: about Hebrews 11:4? May I read
0: that? Of course, that's going to be a reference, am New I, Testament reference.
2: Am I jumping the gun
0: here? You want to wait? You probably are a little bit, I'll but, but yeah, okay. Now I won't get to the Hebrews uh today, but there's also um, we're going to talk about the Jude passage for Cain well, later he on too. Give you a, picture, a better picture of Abel. Right, right. So so, what we see, though, in the narrative itself here in Genesis 4 is this, this elaborate or, or more, more, just more real estate, more textual real estate given to, to Cain here. And what, what came to mind as I, I just thought about that one basic observation in looking at the text is really um, that is the way, that, that is a, an element of the portrait of life in a fallen world. When you think about uh, Christianity, or true believers living life in a fallen world, we are dominated and we are surrounded by unbelief all around us. We are not the majority in the fallen world. In fact, if you think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, when he said to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the essence of the Christian walk, and as I was saying before, this idea of there being no middle ground, and even and how that's become in 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 many confessing Christian circles, um, a, a, not just a, a acknowledgement, but a strategy to say let's let's find that common ground to work from. Um, that, that's not the that, that's not the testimony of Scripture. The dominant um, textual commitment in Genesis chapter 4 to the story of Cain is really the dominant experience that we have as Christians or lights living in a dark place. It's it's kind of a good image of that for us to, to observe. The essence of the Christian's walk in a fallen world is a walk of faithfulness, humility, and perseverance. Not domination or control by force or control by popular vote. It's a totally different view than the, the, the nature of the fallen world around us. That's a, that's, a, that's a mindset that's driven by control, by self-interest, by domination, either control by force, by conquest, or by, you know, let's get the most votes and win the most elections and have the most people representing our views in office and that kind of thing. That's not the way of Christ. That's not what Scripture reveals to us. In fact, to kind of expand this idea and we'll eventually come back to Genesis chapter 4, but I want to I want to just take some time to talk about this by looking at 1 Peter for just a moment. So turn to 1 Peter. Now, obviously, Peter, um, the boldest, most outspoken, um, really most aggressive of all the apostles, Peter, the one who... Uh, As we're told in John 18, at the time when Jesus was being betrayed and arrested in the garden, drew a sword and actually cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. I mean, this is Peter, okay? And so clearly, Peter has to grow in his understanding of the mission of Christ and the mission of Christ's disciples on earth. And we see that growth, that maturity of understanding, clearly conveyed to us in First uh, Peter, in his, in his first epistle. But let's look uh, briefly at verses 3 to 7 of First Peter chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, the society of Abel here. He is addressing believers. In fact, uh, earlier in, in this chapter, in the first part of, um, of, of chapter 1, he calls them elect exiles. So we know that this is, a, this is an encouragement from Peter, urging them and encouraging them to invigorate their hope and, and their ultimate and eternal salvation and to remain faithful in the midst of these various trials that he mentions here because this, this is a way that tests and proves the genuineness of their faith. So the assumption here from Peter is not, is not one of Christians drawing swords and cutting off their enemies' ears. It's one of expecting and recognizing that your hope is based upon an eternal salvation purchased by Christ, but in this world there will be various trials you will encounter And you are to rejoice in them because they test the genuineness of your faith. They prove out the reality and truth of your walk and of that salvation that you're supposed to hope in. But he goes on in chapter 2. And again, I'm just doing some summary um, discussion here of this. But he goes on chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 to 23. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, nothing close to resembling drawing a sword here. But or excuse me, uh, be subject, it goes on, be subject for the Lord's sake, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By doing good. That seems a little benign, doesn't it? kind of feels a little bit too past. I want to draw a sword, don't you? I'll show you what's good and what's right and what's righteous. But no, Peter says, by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He goes on to say, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, as a justification for evil deeds and evil actions, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now you guys know what emperor they're talking about here, right? Do you recall? We're talking about Nero, who launched a persecution of Christians and forms of persecution that were just horrific. And Peter's speaking to these people, who could be eventual subjects of that kind of persecution. But he's calling them to be subject to the emperor here. Honor the emperor, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. So here we are, the society of Abel, the righteous, the called out ones, the elect. And we are called by Peter, the one who drew the sword, to not just be subject to the gentle, but also the unjust masters. What do you mean? He
1: received
0: the yet. Well, uh, correct, but I mean the fact of the matter is is that we have this instruction here that is still convicting, because our, national, our natural inclination in our flesh but he
1: wrote this
0: after, after the Right, correct. So not only to the good, uh, and, and not only to the good in general, but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When I thought about this in light of Genesis chapter four and our calling as Christians, I look at this and I, I, there's a little bit of a as I as I think about it from a certain angle, there's a little bit of um, um, I don't know I just, maybe frustration, not not genuine you know um, major frustration, but I look at this and I'm saying, man, I wish Abel was given more press here. I, I wish that you know that, that my guy was was you know ha- had more. You know, props in the passage here. And then I'm drawn back to this reality, this this comprehensive reality that, that all of us, as part of the kingdom of God, as part of Christ's elect in a fallen world, that's not our motivation. That's not our strategy. That's not our purpose. That's not our calling. And in fact, as Peter so clearly challenges us that we're called to submit... To those in authority. We're called to do good and let our, our good works be the testimony of our faith. And regardless of the faithfulness or justice around us or injustice around us, we're called to the same faithfulness and the same perseverance. And that is how we carry out our mission. And so you look at Abel, and that's that's all you have here about Abel. He was just faithful. That's the only thing you get in this particular text. But in
1: chapter 5, you get Abel's placement. So.
0: Yes, but I'm speaking right here of this particular section right. where. It doesn't tell you much. Right. So you have this, this idea of Abel just being faithful to what he was called to be faithful to. As, as to me, a great picture of what, what we're to be as the society of Abel, if you will keeping this, this this imagery going here for the sake of the study. So, again, the essence of the Christian walk, in light of all this, is a walk of faithfulness and humility and, pers- and perseverance. Not control, not, not getting our way, not taking over, if you will, but redeeming and being ministers of reconciliation and, and seeing the fallen world as not something to conquer, but something to evangelize, something to serve.
2: Isn't it interesting, though? Cain was bringing offerings to the Lord. So, if you try to transpose that to today's culture,
0: what would be comparable? Yeah, that's a that's a key point that we're going to talk about because. Um, well, let me just let me just continue on, and we're going to we're going to elaborate on that a lot next week. Well, no, but I mean, you're just looking at the. T- I mean, it's 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 a it's a implication there that's that's important. Um, and the fact of the matter, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of other ways that I, when I read this, sometimes I, I, I have these, you know, these fleeting thoughts sometimes, and that's one of them where I, I, I that part where I'm like, well, I don't want to, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself now, my own thinking. Let me just, let me pull back. Um, I, I was thinking as
2: you're reading there in Peter, because, uh, the theology of the church today almost only has one narrative, and that is the fact that Abel's supposed to win that, that scenario. Right. He's supposed to be the one who survives and is honored and is exalted. And then, you know, when you come over to Peter, like you were saying, uh, they don't have that that gear in their in their theology to, to think that we might be in a place where we just have to submit to ungodly and unjust. And, but we're being confronted with it right now.
0: We are. In our culture in the biggest way probably in any of our lifetimes. Right.
2: or alternative of an honorable leader. Right. And we're going to have to be forced to live out this theology. But then the question becomes where do we draw the line? I mean, if we have to choose between obeying God and obeying man, it could get pretty sticky. Yes, but uh, I think you know uh, what Richard is pointing out is that the, that the pathway to obeying God is clear. It's it's submit. Uh, we don't have to uh, Act unjustly, but we might have to honor unjust people because God has appointed them as our
0: leaders. Right. I
2: think the word endure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I also want to make the point. I mean, I think Shane's kind of alluding to it as well. And again, this is this is part of this focus today is really just confession for me and some of the struggle that I I, I wrestle with when I think about what it means to be and as I think you know I cast this this image of the society of Cain, the society of Abel, or life in a fallen world, um, you know, I, I want to angle myself oftentimes toward the, these ideas and oftentimes mistaken ideas of righteous indignation against the evils of our culture, where somehow I'm the one that's I've got a pure hand the purest handle on how to how to level out my righteous anger against you know, the fallen culture, which I don't. It's going to be unrighteous anger against unrighteousness, probably, uh, or a mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness. But I, I'm, I, I wrestle with um, not so much uh, overt actions or words. I mean, I'm, I'm obeying the laws, and I'm paying taxes, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not mounting a rebellion or an overthrow of local or state or federal governments. I mean, that's not what I'm doing. I'm really talking about the the discipline of our thinking that leads to ultimate actions and, and ultimate attitudes. Um, that I believe as we um, walk through the day-to-day of our lives and we interact with believers and non-believers alike in just the normal ebb and flow of life at the gas station, at the grocery store, in our neighborhoods, or wherever it might be, that our testimony as believers can become diminished as a result of us mistakenly pursuing what we believe are righteous causes in a fallen world. That's, that's the concern I'm trying to kind of caution myself and all of us against. That there are, The purity of our Christian testimony and what it is founded and based upon, as Peter so clearly articulated as he's encouraging the elect exiles, um, that our testimony can be diminished less than effective in those everyday interactions, opportunities, posts on social media, all that stuff. And I just think that this, this, at least it presented to me kind of a unique context to really think about um, that witness. Can and you
2: give me a practical application of that? Because I want to grasp what it is
0: you're saying. Okay, so... Um, I would, I, would create, I, I would draw a distinction for the believer between, uh, as an example, between... Um, um, well, I mean, let me put it a different way. What I think is uh, all too common in our society, our culture here in America, is an equivalency between um, conservative political causes and the mission of Christ in the world. And so, when we as believers become more exercised and animated by conservative political causes in a fallen world than we do the mission of Christ in the world, then oftentimes our day-to-day interactions are shaded by that kind of emphasis in thinking. um, As opposed to, Pure, undiluted, just gospel witness, um, faithfulness. This this whole um, injunction towards submission, and not just what that looks like from a um, checking the box. I've done my duty, submission. But there's a there's an attitude there. There's a there's a, there's a there's a heart disposition that's associated with that. Out of the heart flow all the issues of life. So you have to assume that there's a submissive heart that's in play there for a faithful believer in the context of a fallen world. I don't know if that helps a little bit. Thank you. Richard, I mean, I'm
2: probably running ahead of you here too, but when you mention those two things, that, that whole idea of the divide that you talked about, those two things work in opposite directions because the political action has to accumulate some sort of critical mass, or we might say an ecumenical bringing people together into that squishy middle mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Whereas the mission of Christ is drawing that dividing line, mm-hmm. saying you are either with Abel or with Cain, you know, yeah. you're equal, either a believer or an
0: unbeliever. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the implications of this are quite unique for our culture, our society, in, in, a, in a sort of a free republic, a democratic society, our, our systems of government, all that. It's quite unique for us, I think, in, in many ways. Um, not unique relative to other times and and eras and places in the world, but it is unique to the American experience and and really what what often takes shape under the rubric of kind of Americanized Christianity, if you will. Again, please don't hear me say, you know, we shouldn't vote or do our civic duty or or you know, appeal to people to, to walk in godliness. Or I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling for a, a, a vacating, a Christian's vacating their duty and their responsibility and their opportunity to participate in political processes. I'm really speaking to our clarity of thinking and our clarity of heart and mind as it relates to our mission in light of all that, in the midst of all that. It is. It's, it
1: what do you consider most important? Evangelizing and bringing people to Christ or saving America?
0: Right. And I, I, I agree. It, it will speak to priority for sure. And I think that the, the error can, can fall on on, on on both sides. And I, I, think, I think I alluded to it at the very beginning here, this idea of the squishy middle. Um, you know, we can get too far out on an extreme from a sort of a... Trying to or having some kind of you know mindset that we can redeem culture through the political apparatus, which just so you know that's a that's a absurd notion. That's not biblical. It's not not practical. It's an absurd notion that we can redeem culture through the political apparatus, the political machinery, or from a um, sort of a church ministry in the community kind of perspective. That we um, we diminish those dividing line distinctions that are stark in Scripture for the sake of reaching people. So, in our efforts to you know reach out to people with the gospel, we're not clear about the demands of the gospel, the call to repentance, that it's, kind of thing.
1: It's really tragic. <laughs> believe everybody's gonna be saved. And if you believe that, why evangelize? Why preach the gospel? Why talk about salvation? Yeah. Everybody's gonna be saved
0: anyway. Yeah, clarity of clarity of doctrine, understanding of scripture, and our mission's critical here.
1: Tolerance has
2: almost become a dirty word.
0: Well actually tolerance has become the the greatest virtue in, in secular society, but it's it's a it's a
2: if you're a Christian and you're Tell you to be
0: tolerant. It means be squishy. It, it will, or, or be tolerant of what we want you to be. We're going to be intolerant of your lack of tolerance for the things exactly. we think you should be tolerant for. It's a really convoluted <laughs> principle. But anyway, getting back here, I want to kind of um, mention a few other observations from the text that we're going to be walking into over the next few weeks. Uh, again, this is, these are just going to be very quick, um, touching the surface kinds of observations that we'll dig into more deeply as we go forward. But as we think about the, this divide between the society of Cain and the society of Abel that we see here unfolding in the actual narrative, historical narrative of Genesis chapter 4, uh, let's note a couple of other things here. Let's note, in addition to this contrast between Cain and Abel, between the unrighteous and the righteous, um, even though there's, uh, in, in, in light of this dominant focus on Cain as the portrait of unbelief in a fallen world, there's some, there's some comparisons, there's some common things that we can see here. Um, the, even, even though the comparisons are, are few and the focus is more on the contrast. One thing that you see is that both Cain and Abel were born into an environment of faith and hope and dependence upon God. You see that in um, verse 1 and the first part of, of verse 2 where it says, Now Adam knew uh, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. So Eve, there's an acknowledgement here by Eve that it's by God's grace and provision and care that that He has brought her through what is now the travail of childbirth and given her a son. And you could even um, you could even think that that there's this there's a hope that's there that maybe this son, this seed, this offspring is going to be the one who's going to bruise the serpent's head. I mean, at this point. She doesn't. She doesn't know. She, there's. There's the promise and the curse in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. But she doesn't know. You know. There, there's a hope there. There's. A, there's an expectation. There's a. There's a blessing of of a child being granted to her. And so both are born into this environment of hope of of a recognition of God's care and provision of a dependence upon God. Both. Were given the common grace and blessing of work. There's this reference to their their occupation. So they both they both worked. They both had uh, f- focuses in their vocation. It says in um, the second part of verse two. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. There's there's some that would make some allusions to um, the nature of that work as being a point of you know dichotomy to note, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, next t- next time probably. But just the the idea is this allusion to um, Cain being a worker of the ground, and that being more associated with the curse in Genesis chapter three, and Abel being a tender of sheep, which is more associated with the dominion mandate. For example, in Genesis chapter one, repeated in Genesis chapter two, to have dominion over the, the animals, so to speak. But this is, uh, I'm just kind of throwing that out there as a little provocative thought. Um, there's nothing, I think, in the text, nor is there anything in the broader perspective of Scripture that would argue that being a tender of sheep is more virtuous or righteous than being a worker of the ground. But it could be a narrative device there that's employed to kind of continue this idea of contrast. Adam was a worker of
2: the ground.
0: Right. Right. He, he was called to keep the garden. So, uh, But both were given this common grace. So, I'm, again, I'm just trying to draw a few more observations of comparison between these two. Um, and both were worshipers. Both were worshipers. And this speaks to what you were talking about. And I'll just go ahead and tell you. Is, we'll actually read the verse in verse... Uh, 3 through the first part of verse 4, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So there was this exercise of an act of worship on the part of Cain. And then Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So both were worshipers, which really speaks to the universality of worship in, in humanity. Everybody is a worshiper. Everybody. The society of Cain and the society of Abel. There's everybody is a worshipper. It's an important point that we're going to elaborate on. But it seems to me
1: that Abel was uh, a little more guilty because he was actually killing some of the sheep. How dare he? Yeah, yeah I mean he was shedding blood.
0: Yeah, that's right. We'll talk about that. Um, but I think it's an, just an important observation that that, that there's the, there's an act of worship that's taking place here, and really that the that the the thrust of the narrative centers around this this worship this act of worship this act of bringing something to the lord so both were worshipers um, it's just that one of them did not worship god in the way that god wanted him to worship him now there's what i was going to say when you brought this up earlier and i'll i'll kind of leave it at that but there's a part of me as as i just read this without thinking about implications or working through you know teaching or anything like that we're just on a casual reading of this, um, I'm I, I'm like, well, that's kind of harsh that God got all bent out of shape. I mean, he he brought an offering, you know. I mean, what's the uh, what what's what's the deal? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a there's an element here where I almost I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic to to Cain because he did he did worship, but think about that as a broader implication, both. Theologically, but also just in our culture, in our professing Christian culture in particular, where, um, where sincerity, kind of like tolerance, is this great virtue, if it's the right kind of tolerance, directed in the right kind of ways, toward the right kinds of beliefs or people. Uh, sincerity is what is has the highest value in the context of any form of faith or worship or belief. Sincerity. Not Not accuracy of truth, not not truth, but as long as I'm sincere about what I'm doing, as long as I'm sincere in the mode or manner or form of my worship, then that's what's valued. How dare anybody question someone's sincerity in their faith? And yet God does. But, But the problem with Cain was, even
1: though he had not pleased God, when God said it, he wouldn't
0: believe God. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, he
1: believed himself. Yeah, there's... What he was right and what God says is
0: wrong. Yeah, if you, if you keep going in the narrative, I mean, he's got plenty uh, to to kind of do away with the whole idea of sincerity as being the You know, a, a lack of sincerity or or valuing whatever sincerity he had. Certainly, he rejected God's counsel and, and there was more going on in Cain than just he brought an offering. And we're going to talk about the nature of those offerings as well. Yeah. We're to, so, so the fact of the matter is, is that that um, sincerity is not enough. In fact, we have that uh, passage at John chapter four, um, where you must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Is that John four? Yeah, John chapter four. So, it's not just worshiping the Father in spirit; it's the worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. So, what we find here in this text, and we'll elaborate on more fully is that it's not just that Cain brought an offering, it's that his offering was not accept, an acceptable offering. Now, something else we're going to elaborate on as we go forward is um, the, the need for us as believers and the complete um, miss of this amongst unbelievers that God determines what is or is not acceptable by virtue of his own will, his own purposes, his own understanding of what is wise, his own understanding of what is good and what is just. And what oftentimes happens, and we've talked about this when we talked about presuppositions in our study of origins, how man likes to view himself as the final arbiter of truth, man and his reasoning faculties as the final arbiter of truth, um, we, we do the same thing as it relates to what passes for faithful worship. When we deem that we are the ones that get to prescribe that, then we are saying that God is not the one who has the authority to determine how he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We basically take that responsibility or that authority on unto ourselves. And so this is, you clearly you the referenced um, Cain's reaction. Clearly, that's touching on that, that point. Cain wanted to worship God in the way that he wanted to worship God. And he was offended by the mere questioning of his offering and the lack of acceptance of it. And we have to always remember, and I think that this is so important when we talk about this, this emphasis in our culture of this squishy middle ground, um, there is a real temptation... For us to, um, we're not just. If we, if we find ourselves slipping into that kind of thinking in our evangelism or in our um, sort of our associations and how we are trying to minister the gospel or, or you know, trying to to, um, to reach people uh, with the gospel, if we find ourselves um, overvaluing sincerity and not speaking. Clear truth into I'll give you an example of what I'm trying to say this is more of a stark example than, than some of these more squishy examples but if you had um, if you had someone who um, professed to be a Christian but they were um, uh, they were Jehovah's witness, but they professed to be Christians, then if you in your efforts to try and witness to them we're trying to um, to not go right at the heart of their form of worship, their form of doctrine their their the nature of their beliefs as not what's prescribed by God, then we're not only um, we're not only sort of watering down or, or minimizing an opportunity that we might have to proclaim the truth of god's word into the life of someone, but we're basically saying that we can determine sort of the right time and the right place and the right context to draw those distinct lines in the sand when it comes to our testimony. And what I find here in this text is God does not hesitate to go there at the outset. It's very clear what the problem is here in the mind and the heart of God as it relates to this worship. And so as we engage the culture around us, we have to be clear. We cannot, we cannot allow ourselves to um, be co-opted by a culture that wants to value forms and modes of worship that are deemed appropriate and even right and righteous because they're just sincerely practiced. They're practiced with sincerity or passion or routinely, consistently, whatever, whatever kind of external accoutrement you want to place onto that mode or form of worship. God is the one who determines how he is to be worshipped, and there is no equivocation. It's not some kind of like, this will do, and that will do, and that will do, and just kind of pick your flavor. That's not the nature and heart and character of God that we see here when it comes to worship, and we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Any final thoughts or comments before we close in prayer? Let's pray.